0: If I could tell you that I am Elijah and uh, I could quote a lot of scriptures and get you to thinking I'm Elijah, would you follow me? Now don't raise your hand, you know. I see heads shaking no already, That that's good, that's encouraging. If I knew the interpretation of a mysterious little book somewhere in the Bible that was given to a prophet who was told to eat the book, would you follow me? Wouldn't that be great? If I knew the mystery of the seven thunders that John was told, don't write in the book of Revelation, would you follow me then? What if I were one of the two witnesses? Or both of them? Would you follow me? What if I could find my name in the Bible? Would you? Now, don't say you can't do that because I looked it up this morning. I had never deliberately tried to find my name in the Bible to find out if I'm named there. And so I did. And I'm there twice in the Bible. No kidding. Matthew 3, 11 to 12, John the Baptist said, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, whose fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, the wheat are God's people. And a garner is a place of gathering or of storage. So God's people are to be gathered unto the garner. And I'm garner. So if I began to say, see, this is symbolic of the fact that all God's people are going to be gathered unto me. Trouble is, if I did that, my enemies would discover the following scripture over in Joel 1, to 17. Alas, for that day, the day of the Lord is at hand, as the destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the meat cut off before our eyes? Yea, joy and gladness in the house of God. The seed is rotten under their clods. The garners are laid desolate. And they would just beat that thing to death. Garner is going to be laid desolate. So that's the end of him. Well, I know this sounds ridiculous. But the way some people interpret the Bible, it takes me back to Eugene, Oregon, a little unincorporated part of Eugene outside the city limits where they had his and her outhouses behind the church. And it was a little group there of about 60 or so to whom my father ministered. And there was a fellow that preached one time that was really getting excited about some of these old German farmer's wives that had their hair done up like a beehive. And it was called a top knot. And they would braid it in one great big long braid and then just pile it in a circle where it came all the way to ever narrowing circle and put some pins in it. And there was this big beehive looking hairdo up there. And so he went over to Matthew 24 and he read the scripture, Top not come down. But of course it says, Let him that is on the housetop not come down to get anything out of his house. But that was the way he singled out just part of a word or a phrase or a sentence and preached a sermon about it. And that's the way a lot of people like to read the Bible. Now, I don't have the faintest idea what the seven thunders mean. I'm not one of the two witnesses. I'm not Elijah. I can't really find my name or anything about me in the Bible and anybody that says they can find themselves in the Bible is lying to begin with. I don't have any secrets or codes or hidden messages. I don't have mysteries or strange interpretations. I don't really have a little book that God has told me to write that I have the secret to. And I don't dispense whistles or badges or secret codes or rings or special handshakes or special secret initiation into rituals which makes you one of our number. I don't issue identification cards. We don't go around with armbands with symbols on them. And yet, I believe that I'm commissioned to do a work. Now, how do I justify that? Well, being a person who hated it all of his young life, who resented what my dad did, who absolutely did all I could do to get away from it, get out, you know, I would go outside and climb the big cottonwood tree while my dad was preaching, or I'd go to sleep on the front row somewhere in one of the pews or whatever. And even though I knew he would never sign for me when I was 17, when I turned 18, as soon as my buddy from Eugene, Oregon, with whom I had grown up and had known from the first grade, could make his final run to sell one of his used cars. I said, Al, come on down. I'm going to join the Navy. And I've chided myself about that to say that I joined the Navy to get out from under authority. But I did. I joined the Navy. I went in to tell my father, well, Dad, I'm leaving at 4 p.m. this afternoon on the Lark or the the, uh, train that is going to take me to San Diego. I've joined the Navy. He said, no, you haven't. And oh, he was angry. And I just told him right then, well, I'm going to watch and see the outcome of you taking on the United States Navy because I'm already in. I've already been down to the terminal annex and raised my hand, and I've been sworn in, and I'm already in the United States Navy. So it was really, really a uh, very, very bad scene. So I went into the Navy, and when I came out of the Navy, my father wanted me to do some driving for him, and he paid me $20 a day. He would get very angry with me because here I was with my tattoos, my Navy uniform, and I'm driving his car, a great big New Yorker Highlander, over here to East Texas to visit some people called the Hammer family and to help him look for a place which was in pretty much the center of the radio responses to his radio broadcast on the big Mexican stations down at uh, Mexico, some of them 200,000 watts and so on and he had me drive him over here and i would keep the wind wing open and he would really mutter to my mother about it but he finally just put up with it because i'm smoking all the time so here i am in my dad's car and he's a preacher and he's on the radio and he's going to build some kind of a tabernacle and when he and a man that i didn't know at the time would be my future father-in-law disappeared through a barbed wire fence into a lot over here by big sandy choked the little post oaks I told my dad, I said, Dad, here you are. You don't have enough money to build a self-respecting outhouse, and you say you're going to build a tabernacle. Well, I didn't really know what would be happening to me in the next few years, and I won't go in and bore you with all the details, but let's just say that I was drafted. And by the time I found myself going to Ambassador College, I wrestled with a particular thing that, I had always fallen back on, which was my standard excuse. Surely all these great big churches can't be wrong. It's like the mother watching the troops parading by and all the helmets are jouncing just evenly except Willie. And it's just going up when the others are down. She said, oh, look, Henry, all of them are out of step except our boy. Well, it was kind of like that. There are all these big cathedrals, all these multi-million member churches, the great Catholic church with all of its tradition and proud basilicas and all of that. And here is the United Methodist. Well, I don't know if they were united then or not. Anyway, the, the Methodist church and all of these great big Protestant churches. Well, along about that time, there was a series of magazine articles, and I believe it was Look magazine or one of those I used to sell as a boy. And they were running a series of articles on Buddhism and Shintoism and Taoism, Confucianism, on Islam, and on Christianity, just as a general, educative series of articles about the basic tenets of these religions and what they stood for. A lot of you have heard of Norman Vincent Peale. I went to hear him one time in person. And I don't know if he was the one who was quoted, but there was a man whose name was about as familiar as that in American churchianity. And he said, right at the upside, right at the very outset of the article, first of all, let's understand what Christianity is not. Christianity is not a way of life. Well, I didn't pay any attention when my dad took the class. See, I signed up for 10 hours athletics, chorale, uh, voice training because I wanted to be a professional singer. Uh, something like geography, I forget, Spanish maybe, but anyway, only 10 hours. And they forced me because of keeping my job, and I was making thirty-seven fifty over in the office working for Byrne while I was trying to sell Everstone and get a job in Hollywood. I went to try out a couple of places and had some auditions without success, I might add. And uh, so along about that time, College began, and I was informed that I couldn't keep that job unless I was a student. And I didn't want to be a student. But he said, well, you'll only have to take a minimum of 10 hours. So I decided, well, listen, if I can take voice training, if I can be in this chorale, and if I can take athletics, all of that is good for me. But I hated it that I had to take what was called Systematic Theology 101. And the teacher was my dad, Herbert W. Armstrong. So when he was teaching, I didn't listen. I skipped class. I drew caricatures of him and passed them over to John Hill, who would snicker and laugh with me, that kind of thing. When my dad wasn't there though, he allowed a student teacher, who was supposed to be something of a Bible scholar, to stand in for him. So on that day that my dad was not there, we were apparently in the second semester going through the book of Acts with a fine tooth comb, and there in two pages open before my Bible, First time I ever made a mark in my Bible, I still got it. It's worn completely out. It's been recovered. It's sitting over there in my desk above my computer right now. A little red check mark beside a scripture in Acts in the second and third chapters and so on where there were four places on a two-page spread open before me in my Bible where it said that they were persecuting that way. And it talked about that way and this way of life and I thought now that's strange here is one of these guys who is a part of my biggest excuse who does my dad think he is how in the world could he be right and all these others wrong is everybody out of step but him and I mean that's a pretty powerful logical argument isn't it don't you think especially to somebody who doesn't like religion and religious people in the first place and I'm still a little bit that way uh, when, it's, when it's false religion, when it's not God's true religion. But that got me to thinking, and I began to pick up other literature. Well, we had a I won't go into all the story, but we had a Mormon, the reconstructed, reconfirmed, reorganized, whatever, Mormon church uh, next to us. And this lady would come over and try to foist religious literature off on my wife. And I would pick up little tracks at the supermarket written by... Mary Baker Eddy or the Adventist or somebody else. And I picked up one by a man named Richard DeHaan. And he had an article in their little pamphlet about law and grace. And he quoted Ephesians 2.8. I will turn to that right quickly to give you an example of what I ran across. And this was very disconcerting to me. I've got to tell you that because first of all, here is this guy who is being interviewed by one of the major religion not religious but major articles and uh, magazines in the United States about the major religions and He does not say anything at all like what I thought he would say He says religion is not a way of life And I thought instead of it being like a superstition or something you just believe that it was in fact a way of life He said no it is not a way of life well In verse 8 of Ephesians 2, Dr. Dehan quoted this. This was his outstanding verse to disprove that the Ten Commandments were still in effect. The law of God has nothing to do with salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Period. And that was the end of that. And that was his scripture that he put in that little booklet. But I read on. And, of course, this had been pointed out, quote, for we are his workmanship, that is, he's our creator, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So the point was that you can never earn salvation or you'd be bragging to God, I did it on my own. Look how good and wonderful I am. I earned salvation. I worked for it. I deserve it. It's a free, loving gift as a result of the sacrifice of Christ. You can never earn salvation if you kept the Ten Commandments perfectly for a hundred lifetimes of a hundred years of peace. You could never earn salvation. But if you repent of sin, which is what? The breaking of God's Ten Commandments. And then the free, loving sacrifice of Christ is applied to you. You don't earn anything. It is God's gift by grace. That's not the condition in which a Christian dwells. It is an attribute of God's character. Are you saved through faith, through believing in Christ and believing in God's promise? And that not of yourselves, even that faith has to be given you by the power of God's Holy Spirit. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And what do you got to brag about? If God gives you everything. So here is this man. Who either is, now if you believe this, I've got a wonderful desert property by a lake, I'd like to tell you. Who either is afflicted with terrible tunnel vision. He didn't see that next verse. Or else he's a liar. He's deliberately picking one part of a passage, of a text, of a thought out of the Bible and using it for his own purposes. Well, I began to study. And little by little... I picked up the uh, United States and British Commonwealth in Prophecy, first of all, and I went through it with a fine-tooth comb. I copied it by longhand on a yellow pad, and I looked up every scripture and read every bit of it, and I began picking up others of my father's literature. I won't go into all the personal things involving the birth of my son and asking my father to heal him when he was dragging his foot and losing my voice and fighting smoking and finally giving it up out of fear because I thought God would take my voice away from me and I would never be able to sing or speak again. But eventually I went to my dad feeling like I knew I couldn't, but I said, do you suppose I could be baptized? Well, my father was very emotional about it he said, yes, of course I could. So a little later on and then again, I never had the idea that I would ever be one of these ministers whom I basically looked down upon. And it wasn't too long before, we all had to have speech class. My uncle Walter Dillon was the speech uh, speech teacher. And it wasn't too long before I think in about 1954, it was, John Hill and I were asked to divert from coming home from the feast or something, I forget, but we went up to Colorado where a man named Dwight Webster had a tent. We're gonna put it up on the side of a hill on his property by the St. Brain River. And there were about maybe 25 or 30 people assembled there and john hill and i were supposed to speak to them i did i wasn't ordained at all but i gave them a sermonette and eventually my father decided came to me and said ted we're going to ordain you along with three others and i've forgotten all of them but norman smith and uh... i think gerald waterhouse and maybe dean blackwell and i i think we're all going to be ordained i went straight to a man that i looked up to and trusted and thought he'd got to really be a person here who knows what's going on named Roderick Meredith he had an office in the Mayfair basement I went over there and I said Rod my dad is trying to ordain me and I'm not qualified I don't want to be in the ministry I'm not fit to be a minister I'm not qualified well later on my father told me the very reason why I should be was because I felt that way all right end of story the rest of the time went by very rapidly By 1957, actually 1955, I did my first television guest appearance on my father's television program. And by 1957, I was doing a radio program full time. By 1958, my father was all but retired from radio. He did only a very few that year. And I did them all. The reason I remember is because at age 28, I was doing a campaign of supposedly six weeks duration every single night in Springfield, Missouri. And in order to get ready for it, I put this great big piece of paper and put squares on it and taped it down to the radio studio desk and every day I would do a live program Then I would do two or three more until my voice was so tired I could hardly croak and I would pencil them in because I had to have one month minimum new programs ready before I could get away from Pasadena so I did that and the rest as you say is history so yes at this point in my life I believe that I'm commissioned to do a work. My father, Herbert W. Armstrong, is dead and gone. And that work, in a general sense, not specifically and not having anything to do with me as a human being or anything to do with my father's human being, that work is prophesied in the Word of God. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, I won't quote all of that. Jesus said, Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. And in Luke 24, 44 to 49, he opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures and said, Thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem till you be endued with power from on high. The day of Pentecost, we've gone over that time and time again. Acts 1, 7 and 8, they were saying, Is it now time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, You will receive power, and you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And a prophecy that it would be that way, the gospel would be preached, is found in Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom, paraphrased, good news of the coming government of God, shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And it's a witness against them. That's obvious in many scriptures. And then shall the end come. Ezekiel was told, Son of man, I send you to a people that are adamant as flint. They are very rebellious. They are stiff-necked. They are hard-hearted. They won't believe what you tell them. But I've made your forehead as Adam and his point as well. So you just go and you speak my words to them. And whether they hear you or whether they do not listen, that's their responsibility. You go and you speak the words that I give you and you've acquitted yourself well. And if you look at the 33rd chapter of Ezekiel about the work of the watchman, you will see that that type of thing is repeated. But especially in the ninth chapter. Now, over in Matthew 7 and beginning in verse 20. Or 15 I'm sorry 15 to 20 beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravening wolves every time I would do that in a radio program I would say how do you know I'm not one of them Christ says there are all kinds of false prophets he said false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many now how do you know well then you can launch into all of these scriptures prove all things hold fast that which is good that you need to be a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That it is here a little and there a little, line upon line and precept upon precept. That only God can open your mind. Many are called and few, few are chosen. That Christ said none can come to the Father, uh, to the Son. I'm sorry, except the Spirit of the Father draw him. That wide is the way and broad is the gate that leads to destruction, many there be that go in thereat, but few there be that find that narrow, rocky, ruddy, difficult way. And so I would launch into that and say, Now prove all things. How do you do that? Well, you listen, you read, like I did many, many years ago, but you don't just take for granted and swallow what you read, you look in your own Bible. You get every proof text you can. You get every kind of a biblical interpretation or translation that you can. You get handbooks. You find out what the man is trying to promulgate and find out if he's being honest with it or not. Dahan was not honest. He was lying. He was deliberately twisting and perverting a scripture and not listing the scripture behind the one that he obfuscated, which would have absolutely destroyed his theory so when i did that and i found out to my absolute dismay that my father was right about some of these things the first opportunity i had when i went to england i went into that part of london that had a whole bunch of old old musty bookshops and bookstores and i went into the irish section and started looking up irish history and i found out yes there really was a tuatha de Danann. There really was a tribe of Dan that landed in Ireland. There really was a tradition that there was a man named Brack who was there with an old white-haired patriarch who had a king's daughter named Tefi. And I found that utterly independent of my father. It had nothing to do with my dad. Those books had been gathering must since way before my dad's grandfather had been born. And so I began to try to prove his theory about the identity of the British and the American people in the pages of biblical history. And that was a more secular way to get at it, I thought. When I think back, I really realize why I did it that way now. Instead of looking up his booklet about water baptism or the Holy Spirit or uh, repentance or salvation, I wanted to find out what he had said about the identity of Europe and America in biblical prophecy. And I proved it to myself. So when I would come across this scripture, there will be many false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. They look like one of the flock. They look wonderful. They look so engaging and so inviting and so magnetic and so charismatic. But inwardly, they are ravening wolves. They want to devour the flock. I've run across a lot of those people. It says in the next verse, you shall know them by their fruits. You shall know them by their fruits. doesn't say you shall know them by their good words or by their bouffant hairdo. I've said jocularly, of course, in the past. And by the way, if anybody wants to know where not to go to get a haircut, talk to me after services. But anyway, uh, I've said several times lately, isn't it wonderful that hairspray was invented just in time for television evangelists? There's one guy that would be bald as a cue ball, but he grows all his hair outside of his head, just right here about an inch above his ear. And it's probably about that long. And then he sweeps it way over here and does it all around, just sprays it. In a high wind, that guy would have one or two things. His neck would be broken, or he would just take off. Uh, but he wouldn't get near any fans or any machinery with gears in them, I guarantee you. He'd get caught in there, I mean. But I, I think my comment is valid if you look at them, and I don't very much, but you can't avoid them if you're just like me. I, I sometimes just go through the channels, and there the guy is with his jacket off, <laughs> hurling at people, and they're falling over backward like so many stiff boards, and they're supposed to be healed. I thought he was handing out arthritis, but he's healing people, allegedly. <laughs> All right. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, and a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits, by what they produce, by what is evident from the work of their lives, you shall know them. You know... I think about this in so many other scriptures about how you can find out where God is working Jesus said in Matthew 16:18I will build my church and the gates of Hades should read the grave shall not prevail against it showing that generation after generation there will be new people who would come along and who would fill up the place of those who died now. I know that there is to be a witness and a warning from all of the many, many scriptures that I've looked at in the Bible. So if I were to just follow my own instincts about how to find where God's work is being done, how would I go about it? Well, I would begin with a process of elimination. I'd start with the Roman Catholic Church, and I would compare the Roman Catholic Church with the Bible. And I would look at the fruits of the Roman Catholic Church all the way down through history. And the history is just enormous. I mean, it is there in the encyclopedias. I've got the entire Catholic encyclopedia. If I stood there, it would stack up that high. And they make many admissions in there about popes that they know were absolutely horrendous in the past. But if you look at the church history section in just a little blue Halley's Bible handbook you can buy in any Bible bookstore, uh, you would just be dumbfounded at the history of the Roman Catholic Church, how it developed, how eventually the... Uh, And Church Council, as I've said before, is a very interesting book that gives a little segment on the gradual development of the confessional booth. One of the major reasons that people like Zwingli and uh, Martin Luther, who tacked the 99 Theses to the big church door in Württemberg, were against the Roman Catholic Church, was the sale of indulgences. Now think about that a priestly kind of a guy for a certain amount of money depending on how much he thinks you will grease his palm with will give you what is called an indulgence which means go out and sin a little bit and the sale of indulgences you've all heard the stories about laps around a rosary and so many hail uh, Mary's and our fathers for doing this and that and there are two guys in the booth and the Jew that sits in for the priest you've heard all these jokes I have too but nevertheless Faithfully's church councils in that book shows why they eventually had to have little screens and slats that a human hand can't penetrate in the confessional booth because people get to talking about their personal problems. And you've got to watch those priests sometimes. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that. But I would start with the Roman Catholic Church, okay? Then I would go to the other churches and their leaders, And I would look at their dogma and their doctrine, and I would compare it very carefully with this book. And I would make very definitely sure of their doctrine. I would want to look at the fruit. I would want to look at the lives of the people who are members of those churches. Now, if I really did thorough Bible study, as I have done for all these many decades, I would eventually have to come with the issue of the Fourth Commandment. And I would have to demonstrate to myself as I have to millions over radio and television that the law was in force long before Moses, that the Sabbath was created at creation, that the patriarchs kept it, that Jesus did and is Lord of the Sabbath, that there is a statement in Hebrews 4 that said, therefore, there remains a keeping of the Sabbath under the people of God, all the many, many proofs that are there, first and foremost, that the Ten Commandments have not been done away. But that Jesus merely lifted them to a spiritual plane, which actually reaches into every little nuance of human thought and behavior rather than destroying the law, which most people argue. So all of a sudden, with one fell swoop, what have I done? Well, I've just thrown out every Sunday-keeping church that is and ever was. And I'm only left with the Sabbatarians. Now I've got a pretty small group I'm looking at. Then I've got to look through each one of them to see what they teach what they preach, what kind of people they are. And when I do that, I really narrowed it down a whole lot. That would be the way I would go about it if I were to do that. Now, eventually, there's another hallmark of God's people that is found in Ezekiel 9, if you will turn to that chapter, because that is quite a horrendous chapter in a lot of ways. Ezekiel, the ninth chapter, is certainly a part of the witness and warning about the kind of people that we are supposed to be and the kind of people who would be doing God's work. It is that chapter about the priestly men and the one that is clothed in linen with a writer's ink horn. Chapter 9, verse 1. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lies toward the north, every man a slaughter weapon in his hand, like a big... Hooked sword. And one man among them was clothed with linen with a writer's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood before the brazen altar to get approval and commission from God. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. Read of that in the first and the tenth chapter of Ezekiel. And he called to the man clothed with linen which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Eternal said, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark and that is mark a mark or make a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof now that is single out people who know right from wrong who understand principle who know what sin is when they see it who are not only uninvolved and uninterested and detached from it but actually have more than sympathy they have such empathy for the victims in all these tragedies that they sigh a deep sigh from way down inside their heart and mind and they cry sometimes over what they see going on around them that is a hallmark of the people of God now just this morning we're treated to news of a mass murder in a Berlin school or yesterday This morning, rather, we're treated to another mass murder of a bunch of shootouts and stabbing between rival motorcycle gang members in Harrah's Casino over in Little Laughlin, Nevada. They're trying to determine right now in Dallas whether or not to give the death sentence to a man who was on the telephone screaming, raging, ranting and raving at his wife because they hated each other and letting her listen while he murdered both of his daughters. They're going to have a trial for a woman who hit and run a homeless man who was so crushed that his head and part of his shoulder was protruding through the front windshield of her car. And instead of getting help, she just drives home, closes the garage door and lets him die there. He was still alive. He's there for several days before she gets a friend to do what? Help her go dispose of the body. Well, then there's Afghanistan and then there is Israel and then there are all the problems in the world and how do you feel about all of that how do you feel about your news what is your reaction as synagogues are burnt and graveyards are desecrated and Jews are beaten to death in France 260 incidents of anti-semitism in France in one week anti-semitism in Germany in Belgium all over Europe especially in eastern Germany because there are large Arab minorities in a lot of those countries. I've got to read something to you. I sat and read quite a bit of the Jerusalem Report this morning. It is the same in Israel as our United States News and World Report is in this country. There's a very fascinating editorial here about the real war of independence. I'll have to skim a little bit because it's quite long and I won't want to be able to I won't be able to read it all. Seder night. You know what that is that's passover night for them where they have the big seder the big meal will be remembered as israel's kristallnacht remember what that was when they desecrated and destroyed thousands of jewish shops and broke the windows and looted the shops all over cities all over germany clear back in 1939 the night the palestinians went too far sending a suicide bomber into a seder at the park hotel in netanya killing 22 and injuring dozens more if you saw that it blew the roof clear off of the building, and there's a picture of it here of just the shambles of the, the uh, well, the various wires and cables and light fixtures and all the stuff that is up there, the plasterboard board lying right on the tables and women trying to sweep and clean up. It was a blatant act of anti-Semitism, not anti-Zionism. It was directed against our Jewish soul, not our Jewish state. The Palestinians are going to remember March 27th, Seder night, as well. It is going to go down in their history books as the night they lost everything. Their quest for independence, their institutions, their leadership, their hopes, and their dreams. They are going to remember it as the night Israel, for the first time, went to war against the Palestinian people. And especially their undisputed leadership, Yasser Arafat. The 1948 War of Independence was fought against the Arab world, trying to nip the embryonic Israel in a bud. The Sinai Campaign in 1956 was an ill-conceived adventure with the British and French against the Egyptians over the Suez Canal. The 1967 Six-Day War was precipitated by the decision of Egypt's Nasser to shut off access to Israel's southern part of Eilat. Jordan and Syria faithfully later decided to join in which resulted in Jordan losing the West Bank including Jerusalem and Syria forfeiting the forfeiting the Golan Heights. In the 1973 Yom Kippur War, Egypt and Syria trying to regain territories they lost in 1967 attacked Israel. The 1982 war in Lebanon was a war against Palestinian terrorists based in Lebanon and their Syrian protectors. This is different. This is the first war since the War of Independence that Israel is fighting for its survival. This is the first time Israel is facing its real enemy. Not the Arabs fighting on the Palestinians' behalf, but our core enemy, the Palestinians themselves, under the leadership of Arabai. That's awful strong, isn't it? See, they're saying that that night was the Kristallnacht, and that was what absolutely was the turning point in modern Middle Eastern history And we've seen what has been happening ever since. And, of course, the absolute untenable position of George Bush in actually abandoning the Bush doctrine by saying they need to get out of there when we will go half a world away and send all kinds of troops uh, over there to Afghanistan to dislodge the Taliban, the Al-Qaeda organization, completely change the government of the nation, which isn't going to work very long, but we've done it. Toward the end of this article, he says this, quote, This will be Israel's last war. I wish he were right, but he's wrong. It will end within a year or two or three or four after Arafat and Sharon have left the stage and new leadership brings a conflict to its logical end with Israel out of the territories and the Palestinians genuinely happy with a two-state solution. But until then, this is a war. And thank God we have the helicopters and the missiles and the technology and the strength. Their hate knows no limits. Our answer is our military prowess. This needs to be used with prudence. But the Palestinians have to know we have already faced annihilation never again. I told you before about the American Air Force General who was actual, no, it was an Israeli Air Force General being interviewed by an American uh, journalist and they were landing on the little airstrip, a very small little airport in Jerusalem itself. It's very rocky and hilly in a very short strip and they were orbiting over the city and looking down at the world's most famous skyline and the now retired israeli general said before we jews will ever again be led like sheep into the cattle trains to be slaughtered in the camps we will pull down the temple of humanity now he was referring to blinded samson who in his death being chained to the portals of a huge building with thousands of people up above pulled them down and thus the bible says killed more people in his own suicidal death than he had during his life. So it was obvious that his threat meant nuclear weapons, of which Israel possesses far more than 1,000 of them, has for years. I said that 20 years before our government ever acknowledged it because I knew it way back in the early, early days of the Nixon administration. With this world the way it is, I don't understand churches. I don't understand most preachers. I don't understand how people can ignore what is going on in the world and just sink down in little cadres here and there and just kind of do their thing religiously and wait it out. I don't understand people going to church week in and week out, year in and year out, hearing about love and faith and hope and charity. That's fine. There's a time and a place for that. But that shouldn't be your steady diet that shouldn't be all you're hearing about it says blessed are those who sigh and cry for the abominations they hear around them but to the others he said verse 5 go after him through the city and smite let not your eyes spare neither have any pity slay utterly old and young maids and little children and women but come not near any man upon whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary go to Daniel the 12th chapter the first couple of verses right quickly Again, a description, and there are many of them here and there in the Bible, about God's people. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. We have entered that time. We've really been in that time for a long period of time, but we haven't known it. Since the close of World War II and the explosion of the first atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki when the world entered into the atomic era and then in 1950 when we came to learn that the the Soviet Union had stolen our secrets and actually had the hydrogen bomb and then when we realized that they put Sputnik into orbit before we could get a man or any kind of a satellite into space and the space race and the arms race was underway the world has been trembling in that brink of uncertainty in that gray area between the war which must never be fought and the peace which can never be achieved i was talking about the fact that eastern europe would come out from behind the iron curtain for 25 or 30 years before it happened i was talking about the reunification of germany for 25 or 30 years before it happened i was saying germany will be reunited reunified Europe will be a part of a United States of Europe. That is happening. They've got one currency. They're building an all-European army. I can prove it by the hundreds of quotations, the hundreds if not the thousands of radio and television broadcasts, the dozens of booklets and articles that I have written and major booklets that are still extant right now, like Europe and America in Prophecy. That I did not in any manner, shape, or form get from what my father wrote, but started out from scratch and got my own sources and gave credit where credit was due, such as Judas Scepter and Joseph's Birthright. Uh, there are ample quotations that are taken from the J.H. Allen book, which are identified in that book. No, I cannot ignore what affects my life, what affects my family's life, what affects my children and grandchildren, what affects people that I have known and loved. Because, you see, I have been inside the homes of well-to-do Palestinians. I have met the Palestinian leadership. I didn't want to meet Arafat. I could have, I imagine, if I'd asked. Husseini, who died only very recently of a heart attack, was the absolute leader of all the Palestinians other than Arafat in eastern Jerusalem. I was in his home. I have had meals and spent a lot of hours with men like Yitzhak Rabin. I've been in the home of Moshe Dayan. Yitzhak Rabin, who was prime minister of Israel twice and defense minister and also a general in the Israeli army, was a man who shocked me when he first talked about an incremental, gradual giving over to the Palestinians of territory. And I didn't think that any Jew would ever be willing to do that. But when I have sat in the homes of Palestinians alike and Jews alike and have come to know them and know their families, their children, their lifestyle, what kind of people they are, It is very easy for me to sigh and to cry for the abominations that are going on and the wretched, unnecessary, stupid, utterly meaningless, futile, useless loss of life. Shattering bodies, as I said before. a Teenage girl, 18, who should have been looking forward to marriage, instead straps a bomb around her and goes into a supermarket and tries to blow herself to bloody bits and does and kill as many other people as she can. What a tragedy. Now, if you look at everything that is going on in the world, and you are able to ignore it, and you are able to just think about little religious things. I got a letter the other day. I'll just talk to those people right now. I'm going to write them a letter so they'll get it. A little local church somewhere that I hadn't even really heard of decided that they want to be Independent. That's kind of like you're in a big neighborhood and there's a big old fire over here in the school. A lot of kids are in there. Everybody's sitting around the neighborhood. A bunch of people say, we got to get 20 guys to go over here on the pump. He says, well, I don't think I want to join you to go on the pump and put out the fire. I think I'd rather be independent. I'll just take my own bucket of water over there and try to put out the fire. Well, I'm going to ask these people, well, okay, you say you're in, quote, general agreement with the doctrines of the church. Would you please define general agreement? So I know where you're not specifically in agreement. And then let me let me tell you something. When you go independent, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have to see to your own growth, because I will not any further send you any referrals. You're not going to reap any kind of a harvest from the Garner Ted Armstrong Evangelistic Association, so far as its television campaign or its website or its publications. If you wish to reduplicate them yourself and Publish them and send them out you're welcome to do that if you wish to hold your own local campaigns you're welcome to do that uh, if you say you still want to be in support I would like to ask what kind of support and uh, how long will that last are you going to attend the official peace site or have your own and since you're not independent now but you want to go independent what does this independence get you what what is the blessing what is the expected benefit that makes it more attractive to you to be independent than to be a part of the church called the Intercontinental Church of God. I would love to have that explained to me sometime, because I'm just out of I don't understand what is to be gained by being independent any more than I would understand the movement in Texas to secede from the Union. And there is such a movement. I don't understand that but then some people say that my brain doesn't work the way theirs does. Thank God it doesn't. Well, I will conclude this very shortly now by going to the 40th chapter of the book of Isaiah. one of my favorite chapters of all the Bible because it's a very hopeful chapter. And after all, what Jesus Christ did predict was that there would come a work that would be a work of witness and warning, but a work also of invitation, a work that says there is going to come a world-ruling empire, and Jesus Christ of Nazareth is its king. He doesn't need your vote. He's already been chosen. He is going to come at the helm of armies, and he's going to conquer all nations, and he's going to rule the world in peace, in justice, in love, in mercy, in forgiveness, in harmony, in happiness and joy for 1,000 years. He's going to force people to live the kind of a life they ought to live. And there isn't going to be any more crime. There isn't going to be any more sickness or disease. There won't be anybody that, uh, in any manner, shape, or form, will be plotting to do evil against someone else without an angelic messenger or a member of God's own family just popping into view right in front of him and say, this is the way, walk ye in it. It just won't be allowed. It'll be a time of joy and peace such as you cannot imagine. Now, here's this beautiful chapter that says, comfort ye. And it's a prediction about the coming of John the Baptist who fulfilled the prophecy that an Elijah-like figure would come to prepare the way for the second coming of Christ. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, finally As that article opined, this isn't the last one, but finally there will be that last war, and there won't be any more war against the Jews or Jerusalem. Her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Eternal's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way, it is a way of life, of the Eternal. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley... That's every lesser little nation shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked will be made straight. And the rough places plain or in a plain place. And the glory of the eternal shall be revealed. You know, the reason I like the Messiah and the Elijah and some of that kind of music is so absolutely incredibly inspiring is because it is almost 100% right out of the Bible. The word of God. And it is beautiful and hopeful music. And it's about the second coming of Christ. There's one here that comfort ye, comfort ye. Every valley shall be exalted. It's all in there, in that beautiful music. I used to be able to participate and sing all the bass oratorios in the Elijah, the uh, Messiah rather, and I just loved it. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Eternal has spoken it. And a voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and the goodliness thereof is the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the spirit of the eternal blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. We're here such a little short time. We blossom for a moment, and then we start aging, and we get old, and age is upon us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. O Zion, that bring us good tidings... That's the good news of the coming kingdom of God. Get thee up to the high mountain. O Jerusalem, bring good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. There is to come a work of God before the second coming of Christ. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs at his arm. And all these words are in that beautiful music that I talked about, the Messiah. And he shall carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Then it talks about the greatness of God and to whom shall you liken him. Well, I will conclude with that, but I will say once again, people are looking here and there all around today, thousands of them who used to be members of the Worldwide Church of God, for a man to follow. I didn't need a little book and I'm not Elijah and I'm not one of the two witnesses, but if you want to look at the fruits and you want to find out where the work of God is being done, I would invite you to do a little research and find out.